This is an AMI podcast. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. In this special one-hour episode, we'll learn about recent advances and innovations in eye care and vision health. This episode is presented in collaboration with Fighting Blindness Canada. Fighting Blindness Canada leads the fight against blindness by raising and directing funds to accelerate the development and availability of treatments and cures. To learn more about FBC, including information about upcoming programming, visit their website at fightingblindness.ca. A previous Pulse episode presented in collaboration with FBC on the topic of eye care during COVID-19 is available as a podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Today, we'll hear from experts, a parent advocate, and a representative from FBC about cutting-edge developments in vision care. 1.2 million Canadians are either blind or partially sighted. Another 8 million Canadians have an eye condition which puts them at risk for vision loss. So, the hunt for effective treatments is on. Later on in the program, we'll hear about some of these exciting developments. But first, let's look back on what's already been achieved. Anti-VEGF injections, for example, have already had a huge impact on Canadians living with wet age-related macular degeneration. Our first guest today is Dr. Bernard Hurley. Dr. Hurley is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Ottawa as well as Fellowship Director at the University of Ottawa Eye Institute. He is also a vitreoretinal surgeon at the Ottawa Hospital. He joins us today from Ottawa, Ontario. Dr. Hurley, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program. It's absolutely my pleasure. So we know that there are many types of eye diseases, but the most common kinds are wet AMD or age-related macular degeneration or eye diseases that stem from conditions like diabetes. What goes on in our eyes if we have one or more of these conditions? Absolutely. You've named uh, the two most common causes of blindness in Canada today, wet macular degeneration being the most common cause and diabetic eye disease, the second most common cause, but actually in younger patients, uh, diabetic eye disease is the most common cause of visual loss in Canada. Both of these conditions are characterized by dysregulation in the vascular system at the back of the eye, so the blood vessels inside the eye not behaving well. So in diabetes, they're primarily damaged by the high sugars in our circulating uh, blood, uh, as well as some other inflammatory um, factors in that disease that damage those blood vessels and make them leaky. And this results in some new abnormal blood vessels being produced. And interestingly, it's a very similar response in age-related macular degeneration, where the chronic buildup of some basically debris toxins in the back of our eye over time break down um, the, the barrier between the blood vessels and the eye, the, the blood retinal barrier, and again, allow blood vessels to become leaky. And in response, the eye tries to grow new blood vessels, but these new abnormal blood vessels, they leak out fluid and they leak out cholesterol and they cause a lot of damage inside the eye. Sounds awful. How might we go about treating some of these eye conditions? Well, you know, we are extremely 
extremely, extremely blessed right now um, to to have modern treatment for both diabetic eye disease as well as age-related macular degeneration. Um, when I started training and, and, and learning how to treat uh, people with these eye conditions, I, you know, our first treatments for these were basically involved using a laser, laser to try to burn away and destroy uh, these abnormal blood vessels and lasers to try to stop the leakage from other blood vessels that had been damaged inside the eye. But of course, firing a laser into the back of the human eye to burn away um, the damaged blood vessels has collateral damage, so to speak, on the retina itself. So it was a way of controlling the disease. It was a way of trying to you know, make the disease uh, and not get worse. Um, but it was disappointing in that um, patients often didn't improve. We could more stabilize the patient than improve it. And it was very sad when, when we were limited to that kind of treatment because patients would come in and they'd say, you know, I've lost a lot of vision. I, I can't see well. I can't see the faces of my grandkids anymore. I can't drive. I can't read. And we'd often be stuck with telling them, okay, listen, really, I can give you something that won't It'll slow you down from getting worse or try to stop the disease from getting worse, but it won't bring your vision back. So it was a really disappointing time to treat these kinds of patients. That evolved into an era where we could use some more refined delivery of the laser light. So we developed something called photodynamic therapy, where we could give um, the patients this, this dye, basically, that would concentrate in abnormal blood vessels and the, the bad blood vessels and leave the good blood vessels alone. And then we could use a laser to activate that dye and seal up the bad blood vessels by preserving the good blood vessels. But it really was only a minimal step forward. There are certainly some patients who did well with it, but these, these home run successes weren't common. But luckily today, in modern era, we developed medications that we can inject into the eye that actually reverse the eye disease that that take away diabetic retinopathy can literally melt it away before our eyes and really get the retina back into a normal condition. And the same thing in macular degeneration. So we're in a very exciting time right now in our ability to actually take a patient that's severely lost vision due to these conditions, treat them with some injections of this medication, and actually bring their vision back, which is really what the patients want and what we want for them as physicians. Um, many of us have heard about the anti-VEGF injection. I think that's what you're alluding to here. What exactly are they? How do they work? Um, how were they developed? Excellent. Uh, so exactly right. So VEGF is vascular endothelial growth factor. And we learned that our laser treatments were destroying um, unhealthy cells. And we didn't know why this led to some improvement. But it turns out after years of research that this is primarily the driving cytokine. So a cytokine is sort of a, a way the body has for delivering signals or messages from one part to the other. And when blood vessels become damaged in diabetes or in macular degeneration, there's an upregulation, an overproduction of this cytokine. It's basically the eye crying out for help, saying, you know, give me something good that I can use to help my retina now. And so that results in these abnormal blood vessels being being produced and growing. And of course, the response can cause more harm than good. So we need to block this cytokine in order to really save the eye. And to do this, we learned lessons from our colleagues who are treating cancers. So cancers grow and they develop and they spread and they enlarge by mm -hmm. growing new blood vessels to feed more of the tumor. And so in cancer therapy, they learned that you could, in fact, shrink tumors and get rid of tumors by giving them something that would block 
VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor, and this would cause the shrinkage and reduction of these uh, tumors. Interestingly, some people made some very astute observations that people with wet macular degeneration who are getting anti-VEGF therapy for their cancer, their macular mm-hmm. degeneration started to get better because, of course, it was not controlling and curing these abnormal blood vessels in the eye of the patients who had wet AMD. And so a very bright group of researchers down at the Boston Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida, took it a step further and started giving patients anti-VEGF medication to treat AMD, not to treat cancer, even though it was only approved to treat cancer. They used it for wet AMD, and they had great results, except the fact that when you give it to a patient in cancer doses, you give it through intravenous, and and, and the body Mm -hmm. gets a lot of this medication. And the medication, like any chemotherapy, can have toxic effects on our heart, on our digestive system, on, on our kidneys, many parts of the body were suffering. So obviously we couldn't mm-hmm. use that. We couldn't, we couldn't use this to treat the eye, but expose somebody else to these very bad side effects. So there was a brilliant leap of faith where uh, an individual basically um, decided instead of giving it through the intravenous, I'm going to take this medication, I'm going to put it in the tiny, tiny little dose, the tiny little dose that will be needed to treat the eye by calculating how big the eye is, with respect to the rest of the body, and inject that right into the human eye. And, and mm. it was a brilliant leap forward, but you know, at the time people thought, this is ridiculous, using a needle to inject the medicine right into the eye. But it turned out it was incredibly effective. You could give such a small dose that it was perfectly, perfectly safe, but yet it stopped the disease in the eye. So it really came from cancer research, and then somebody, you know, making that leap of faith and trying it inside the human eye. Mm-hmm. It's true. You know, my um, my mother-in-law was diagnosed in the 80s with uh, AMD. And, of course, her vision deteriorated significantly because they didn't have these injections at the time. And my husband and I often regret that those things, were, those options weren't on the table. When you work with patients, what sort of response do you get when you talk to patients about the anti-VEGF options? How transformative do patients find it? Oh, it's incredible. So, you know, you first tell a patient, listen, I'm going to stick a needle in your eye to, <laughs> to make you see better. And, of course, the reaction is they think of that little saying we had as a kid, you know, stick a needle in my eye, hope to die. And people are like, oh, my goodness, ugh. you know, and it's a scary <laughs> concept. But as soon as you start putting them on the therapy, as soon as they start getting the injections, they just want more. They're, they they mm. see better. They, they Their vision comes back. And it's hard to even relate to these patients the time before we had these injections where people came in and I couldn't make their vision better. And now for the majority, the vast majority, the injections are very effective and they, they, they start to read again, they start to drive their car again. And it's really, it changes their whole lifestyle. It gives them back their freedom. It sounds like it's really working out for the people who get these injections, but what other advances are taking place in the field? Are these injections the be-all and end-all, or is there more research happening that you can bring us up to speed with? Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, It's so true, right? Right now, it's a huge burden on our healthcare system. It's a burden on patients. It's a burden on their family. And in a way, it's a burden on society, right? Like, a lot of these patients need these injections every one to two months. So, 
many of these people are elderly. They have a hard time getting to the clinic to get the injections. They require their family members to bring them in. It's hard for them to come to clinic during winter storms, during the Canadian winter. Sometimes they get sick with other things. It's hard to get them to the clinic or their spouses or the people they love and are caring for. And so it's a very, um, very difficult burden on some people to constantly be coming in for these injections. Some people don't like them. It hurts a little bit when it goes into the eye. They have a fear of needles. They fear like they're burdening their family members to get them to take them to these clinics, and, and they're becoming a burden on them. There's the cost to society. It's, it's very expensive therapy. And then there's uh, people who are giving the injections, and sometimes we feel like all we do now is just needle after needle, and we have so many other things we, we have to take care of as well, uh, surgical cases, conferences, and teaching and stuff. And so sometimes it's hard for us to to get enough time to, to, to meet the need. So we're looking for better ways to do it. Um, the, the, the most exciting things I think that are coming out right now and in the immediate future are medications that are going to last longer. So there's new formulations that are coming out now with these medicines that you can inject them and they might only need every three to four months instead of every one to two months. You can see where that would save the system, the patients, and really decrease the burden of treatments. They're developing depots of this medication that go in the eye, maybe a larger injection but last a long time. They're developing little um, uh, reservoirs that are basically sewn underneath this conjunctiva, sewn under the skin of your eye, and they have a tiny little valve, the tiny little tube mm -hmm. that, that goes into the eye, and then you fill up these reservoirs once every 6 to 12 months, and they slowly you know, release the medication into your eye. So we're looking at um, better ways of delivering it to the patients, finding out how, how much each individual patient needs. So really looking at every patient on their own and seeing how long we can go between injections. That's things we're doing in clinic right now. Um, we're developing these other ways of, of delivering the injection that are longer lasting. But I think the most exciting research right now is the new formulations that, are, that, that last much longer. And so it's still a very, very simple procedure. It's just an injection. It doesn't require the surgery that some of the other treatment modalities might. And yet we can reduce this burden of treatment on physicians, patients, family, and society. Well, and considering that wet AMD and diabetes-related blindness are some of the leading forms of blindness in Canada, I have to tell you, some of this upcoming research sounds really fascinating. Unfortunately, we're at the end of our time together today, but uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hurley, for taking a couple minutes. I know you've been really busy and uh, just for chatting with us and bringing us up to speed. My pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. That was Dr. Bernard Hurley from the University of Ottawa. He was in Ottawa this morning. While the development of anti-VEGF injections is a success story, for those Canadians living with wet AMD, for instance, there are other eye conditions for which we still do not have adequate treatments or people for whom existing treatments don't fully work. That's where developments in gene therapy, for instance, is generating a lot of buzz. You're listening to a special one-hour episode presented in collaboration with Fighting Blindness Canada on the topic of innovative eye treatments. To learn more about FBC, visit their website at fightingblindness.ca. Today, we're taking a closer look at emerging treatments like stem cell research and gene therapies. For more, we reach Dr. Brian Balios. Dr. Balios is a clinical fellow in inherited retinal disease at Massachusetts Eye and Ear Institute at Harvard University. 
He is also Senior Research Associate at the University of Toronto's Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Sciences. He joins us today from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Balias, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. So when we talk about some of these emerging or innovative treatments for various eye conditions, a lot of these treatments tend to be very complex and people have heard about them in the news, but they may not know what they are. So I thought we could take a couple of minutes to go over some of the more popular treatments, starting out with stem cell therapies. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, as you said, the, the treatments are evolving quickly in this field and uh, and they're multiplying. And we're very excited that there are going to be multiple options, we think, in the future for patients with inherited and genetic eye conditions. Stem cell therapy is, is one of those uh, approaches. And the goal of stem cell therapy is really to replace the light-sensitive cells inside the retina. And in that way, uh, the, the goal is to regenerate vision because in many of these retinal conditions those light sensitive cells are lost slowly over time over many years and stem cells show great promise in potentially regenerating the retina. Mm -hmm. And so for what kind of eye conditions might a stem cell uh, therapy come in use so what kind of eye conditions might we use to treat using a stem cell therapy? Well it's a great point I mean stem cells because they're looking at replacing the light sensitive cells we really think about treating patients who have lost many or a majority of their light-sensitive cells. And so these, these may be older patients who've been living with uh, their condition for some time and, uh, and we're looking to, to replace those cells. And so all of these treatments are not only, not only do they work in different ways, but they may actually be more appropriate for patients at, at different points in time in their life uh, and, and in their condition. And so stem cells uh, would be applicable to patients with, with disease caused by a variety of different genes or misspellings in genes that can cause disease. So it's not, not necessarily specific to any one, one type of retinal disease, but may be helpful for a number of different ones. Hmm. What about gene therapies? I've, uh, I don't really know if there's a difference between stem cell therapies and gene therapies. Are those interchangeable or are they completely different things? Well, it's a great question. So when we think of gene therapy, uh, we're, what we're talking about is, is using uh, some approach to change the way that uh, the DNA is spelt inside the, inside the eye or even add back a functional copy of a gene in order to help the retina to function uh, better. And we know that in, uh, in inherited retinal conditions, um, misspellings in genes, we call them mutations in science, misspellings in genes uh, cause changes in the blueprints of the uh, of the cells they cause changes in the way that the cells can function and they don't function optimally and detect light properly and the goal of gene therapy is to replace or edit genes to put them back into the cells and so in contrast to stem cell therapy for a patient who has many light sensitive cells in their eyes uh, even if those cells are not working properly because they have a misspelling in the gene then the goal of gene therapy is to put back a properly spelled copy of, of the gene and gene therapy is an mm -hmm. exciting field uh, it's a field which is advancing quickly. There are active clinical trials in gene therapy, but it depends on knowing the very specific spelling in the DNA causing the disease. There's even an approved mm -hmm. gene therapy um, called Luxterna uh, that's approved for RPE65 a disease that's, uh, that's just been approved by Health Canada this last fall, and we're hoping that it'll be coming to patients soon. 
Yes, we'll be speaking in a few moments to a parent whose uh, whose child, at least one of them, had an opportunity to be part of the clinical trials for Lexterna, and that'll be later on in the program. But just for now, you know, for those of us listening, and if we're intrigued by the possibilities in gene therapy, what sort of eye conditions, again, might gene therapy be used to treat? Well, examples of clinical conditions would be things like retinitis pigmentosa, or conditions you may have heard of called Leber congenital amaurosis. It may even be useful in the in, for other sorts of specific retinal conditions like uh, Stargardt disease. So there's a variety of different retinal diagnoses that it might be useful for. But again, gene therapy is about targeting a specific gene and a specific change in the spelling of the DNA in that gene. And so getting genetic testing and knowing which gene is causing the condition becomes very important when thinking about whether someone will be eligible for gene therapy in the future. I would hate to be the one to muddy the water, but the other term that has sort of come across my desk and that I've heard about is something called optogenetics. So again, is that different from gene therapy or is that just another word for the same thing? Well, optogenetics uses gene therapy, but it uses it with a, with a very different goal in mind. And so the goal of optogenetics is to add back a gene that gives light sensitivity to a different part of the retina. And so in, the, in typical or traditional gene therapy that's being used right now, the goal is to give back a properly spelled copy of a gene to the light-sensitive cells, the photoreceptors. But in optogenetics, it's about giving back a light-sensitive gene not to the photoreceptors, which normally detect light, but giving them to the helper cells in the retina, the cells that are normally not lost in disease, that normally don't go away, and making those cells light-sensitive instead. And this is a really exciting opportunity to, by making those cells light-sensitive to get around the problems with photoreceptors and maybe make other parts of the eyes light-sensitive, regenerating vision. When I think about all of these treatments, I wonder what the potential is for people who might access them down the road. So for a number of people, there is, there's a lot of anxiety around vision loss. You know, people worry about uh, losing their vision gradually over a long time. That people worry about having an eye condition that previously could not be treated. How much of a game changer would you say some of these new and innovative techniques actually are? Oh, I think they're. I think they're. Uh, they show incredible promise, and I think that promise is again going to depend on the level of, of visual function and what stage of the condition that patients patients come uh, their practitioner with. Um, we've only we're only scratching the surface by talking about uh, those particular approaches that we we just touched on stem cells and, and gene therapy, and you know these these approaches are already pro- are already proving themselves um, in. The- and so uh, with approved gene therapies and several more trials uh, going on, um, there are many, there is much industry interest and, uh, and interest in developing these therapies. I think one of the, one of the hurdles, of course, is, is, well, in gene therapy in particular, tailoring each specific gene therapy to that specific gene and the misspelling in the DNA. Um, but researchers and companies are getting faster and faster at developing these. And so we've seen a proliferation of these trials um, that have been uh, growing over the last five to ten years, and we're just going to see we're just going to see more in the future. So uh, I tell all the patients who come into the clinic that that we absolutely believe that that uh, we will one day have have a gene therapy for their for their specific gene, and uh, and things are moving forward. 
I know it's not unusual to treat eye conditions with various drugs, and I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to ask you uh, if there's been any recent evolution or innovation in some of these drugs that might help to save people's vision. Yes, certainly. So in addition to thinking about uh, you know innovative gene therapies and stem cell therapies, there are also um, there are also trials looking at at drugs, things like pills that a patient might take uh, that would be protective to the light-sensitive retinal cells. We call this neuroprotection. And uh, neuroprotection is a very active field of research. In fact, um, uh, investigators uh, in the U.S. at the National Eye Institute are uh, studying uh, a drug that's going into a phase three clinical trial right now uh, called NAC, N-acetylcysteine. This is a drug that's been used before uh, to protect the liver um, in patients who have uh, who, who have uh, liver uh, liver disease, and it's being studied because it may have some potential benefits in the retina. Now these trials remain to to prove this, but we know that this is an example of of just one drug that's being studied that may you know eventually be helpful to to protect visual function and slow down or even stop the progression of of disease slowly over time. So uh, there's. There's a there's a small army of researchers and people working on these on these questions, and I, of course, we're all hopeful that one or more of these approaches will be helpful for all all patients living with inherited disease. Mm-hmm. A few minutes back, you mentioned that one of the hurdles with the gene therapy is the challenge with matching um, the therapy to a, a specific gene misspelling. Um, and just to put it, you know, colloquially for those of us who are not doctors, uh, do you foresee any other hurdles to this research, or is it smooth sailing now? Uh, no, I think that uh, you know one of the other uh, hurdles will be understanding how the promising results we see in the laboratory really translate into meaningful visual function for people. And so the way that, that ophthalmologists have tested vision in, in, uh, in people for years has been with vision on an eye chart, reading letters on an eye chart. We've come to understand that this this might not really reflect how people... Surprisingly, this might not actually reflect how people behave with their vision in real life. Seems pretty obvious, right? Um, so we're getting better and better at understanding what are the ways that we actually assess patients in the clinic to understand the, whether the changes that they're noticing can be quantified, uh, can be measured, and can lead us to better ways to understand how these drugs and, and these therapies are going to help them. And, uh, of course, challenges remain in developing therapies for, for different specific genes. Um, but but I, think, uh, I think the promise and the growth in this field over the last decade is, uh, is, is only going to continue on that upward trajectory. I know there are often questions, and I'm sure you get them from patients as well, about how they might get involved with the clinical trial um, or get involved with the research. What advice do you normally give? Well, when a patient says, you know, Doc, do you think it would be, you know, do you think it's a good idea to participate in a clinical trial or what should I know about a clinical trial? Uh, I think the, the first thing I try to remind them are our trials are, clinical trials are just that. They're about trying something new. They're not therapies. Uh, there's, no, there's no guarantee in a trial that a, a therapy will work. The purpose of the trial is to understand whether it's, it's going to work or not. And everyone has a different tolerance for that sort of participation. Many want to uh, many want to wait for an approved treatment, something that's that's been proven to to be efficacious before they receive it, and that's okay too. And I, I think that's important for patients to hear and understand that they don't miss something by not participating in a clinical trial. 
and waiting until something is proven effective before before it's offered. But those who are interested in trials, I, I think it's important to stay connected with your ophthalmologist for regular examinations. When studies are looking for patients to participate in trials, they want to know the most up-to-date uh, examination findings. But stay connected with your retina specialist, and and if they if they know about a a trial going on, and they and you happen to know your particular gene, they can refer you to a specialist uh, um, like myself uh, for genetic conditions. Dr. Balias, thank you very much for keeping an eye on all of these emerging treatments for us. It's been great chatting with you about them. It's my job. Thanks very much. That was Dr. Brian Balios, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Toronto School of Ophthalmology and Vision Sciences. He was in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Juita Gupta. In this special one-hour episode, we are talking about innovative treatments for eye care. This episode is presented in collaboration with Fighting Blindness Canada. We've heard about the history of innovative treatments as well as some exciting advances. These treatments have the potential to change lives for Canadians living with vision loss and for their families. Scores of researchers and parent advocates are helping to spread the word about the impact of these treatments and the need for public funding. Charmaine Brown is one such parent and an advocate. She has joined us to share her story. She is in Pickering, Ontario this morning. Charmaine Brown, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good of you to take a few minutes out of your day to chat with us on the program. Hi, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Charmaine, tell us a little bit about your family. And I've heard from many people that you're a bit of an advocate for your family as well. How does that come about? (laughs) Uh, I am. I am the proud mother of two incredible young people. My daughter, Jenna, is 21. And my son, Adam, is 17, um, just finishing up high school. He's in grade 12 at W. Ross McDonald School. And they both were born with uh, the degenerate eye disorder, retinitis pigmentosa. So they've been partly sighted their entire their entire life. They know no other way of being than being partly sighted. And um, it's been a long journey for a lot of different reasons, particularly around school. But even with the, the challenges and triumphs that come with that, they have thrived into really incredible young people. They're both very interested in the arts and in drama and music. Um, Adam's heading off to university uh, for Bachelor of Fine Arts and Music in the fall. Um, he enjoys, he's a competitive Taekwondo um, athlete. And Jenna is a YouTuber. She has a really, really healthy following on YouTube. And, uh, and they're both big TikTokers like most young people today. So they're doing great <laughs> things, even with their, with their vision impairment. And uh, around our advocacy, we are always willing to, you know, educate those who may not have as much experience with people who, who live with a vision impairment and what that might mean like. And therefore, how do we be, be allies for that, for those of us who have the privilege of, of sight, to be allies for those who don't and uh, ensure that our society and how we navigate spaces and places are as equitable as possible. Hmm. Uh, Today, we're talking about some innovative treatments for genetic eye conditions. And one of the treatments that's been getting a lot of buzz is Luxterna. What have you heard about that? And how did you hear about it? Yeah, Luxterna came um, to us quite a long time ago. It wasn't under that name at the time. But uh, my daughter, Jenna, was part of a study out of the U.S. that was looking at using this treatment 
to halt and uh, support um, uh, our student uh, children or people who have RP. And so she's been part of that study since age seven. So over, it was well over 10 years, 12 years that we were working with them mm-hmm. um, going back and forth. So that's how we initially heard about it. But now we know that it's been approved in Canada, the treatment. Jenna was fortunate as part of the study to be able to be treated when she was 12 years old. She was one of only two children received that treatment. Everyone else were adult, adults at the time. And so we've had the, the privilege of seeing the benefits of this treatment. So once she received mm-hmm. it and she was treated in only one eye, she, her night blindness was improved. Her, um, and the, 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 and she was a lot more confident immediately, like immediately after the surgery was done, there was no kind of long wait time or a healing time. There was an immediate change in terms of, um, the night blindness in particular, but even having mm-hmm. more, um, light perception. And that, but the most important piece was is that her vision, her regression of her RP was halted. So there hasn't been any decrease in her vision over the years since she's had the treatment, which has been going on to eight to 10 years now since she's had that treatment. So that's the most promising and exciting part of the treatment. So that's how we came to know it. And now my son is in line to... and. Uh, is eligible for the treatment now that it's available here in Canada. Um, and so we're just waiting for that approval to happen. I want to ask you what I think is a, a tricky question, but I, you, your, your son and your daughter, they're both doing really well, it sounds like. One is, you know, a, has a, is a YouTube star, the other one is off to university. And, and yet you're looking to pursue the, your, this, this line of treatment for your son. Your daughter's already had it. Tell me a little bit about what having access to this treatment would mean for your kids. Yeah, it means two really important pieces. One is that it's going to ensure that they don't lose any further vision than what the limited vision that they have. They're not going to lose any more of that. And so that's a huge piece because what mm-hmm. that brings is further um, independence, the, the, less, the, the less need to have to have others do things for you or to support you in things because they'll be able to have enough vision to do it themselves, to be able to access technology, to be able to access price tags, just the daily um, living skills that we have, they'll be able to do that independently and be able to pursue all the things that they want to pursue that all young people want to pursue at this stage in their lives, but to be able to do it independently and to be able to do it confidently. The other piece about it is that well-being piece as well. It's just knowing, because as they're going up, there's, there's always that fear. There's always that, that thing in the back of your head that the, the limited vision I have now may not be there tomorrow, that five years from now, 10 years from now, I could be, I might not have any vis, any functional vision at all. And so knowing that Luxterna will, the, the treatment of Luxterna will allow the ability to halt that regression of their vision and maintain what they have, um, leaves a lot, allows for them to have that well-being piece as well, to know like, you know what? This is as far as it's going to go. This is the vision I'm going to live with and continue to work with. And so I think there's mm-hmm. something to be said about that quality of life piece 
because that is such an important piece. They're going to be able to have a better quality of life overall and then lessen the burden on society in terms like if we're thinking of it money-wise, if we're thinking about it government-wise, government support-wise, it's going to lessen that need. If, you know, children like myself or other people who, who are also eligible will be able to do that. That's going to support all of society, not just them as individuals. Great point. And, you know, as someone who's visually impaired myself and who's had stable vision for the majority of my adult life, I have to tell you, it it does make a big difference not having that unpredictability as part of the equation. When we hear about treatments like Luxterna, a lot of people get excited. Um, a lot of people see the possibilities, but there are just as many people who feel cautious, who feel anxious, who don't know what to expect because it's all so new. What about the side effects of the downsides? Are you been involved with this treatment for a long time if someone were to ask you what would you tell them to put their minds at ease about any potential shortcomings or side effects well i would definitely you know let them know that those feelings are real and when we were going through it when it was just an experiment at the time it was a real fear of you know what would this mean with it, it i mean it has the any surgery has the potential to go wrong um, and especially a treatment on the eye, it, it could cause further vision loss. But our experience has been, and, and the results of the surveys, the, the, the study that we were part of out of the University of Philadelphia, um, sorry, Pennsylvania, but also um, other studies around the world that also have been doing it, it have been nothing but positive. And our own personal anecdotal experience has been that it has, it has only been a positive piece. And because I have two children who have um, RP, um, seeing Jenna's progression, because she's older, um, has, it's been a very different trajectory than my son, where he has lost vision over the time that she has had the treatment. So if he had had the treatment back when, at the same time, his the functional vision he would have now would be a lot greater than where he currently is now, where he is still seeking that, that treatment. So yes, the fear is real, but the benefits definitely outweigh those fears. Hmm. So, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago that this treatment was approved by Health Canada. Recently, I saw a news article to that effect myself. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you're hoping Canadians can do to ensure that beyond the approval phase, that this treatment is made available to as many people who might want to get it. Mm-hmm. Well, the challenge right now is, as it is in anything in society, it's about money. And, you know, the cost of this therapy is high. Um, as most invasive uh, new innovations are, the cost is high. And right now we're just waiting for the pharmaceutical company and the government and the Ministry of Health to get together and confirm what that pricing will be so that um, doctors who are at the ready, specialists who are at the ready, and patients who are at the ready um, can go can move ahead with going forward with the work. So what people can do is to advocate as we have been doing my both of our both of our children have put out TikToks to get the word out to, to be able to share the importance of this, um, not just for certain individuals, but just for all of us as a, as a collective as a society and the importance of this. Um, so contacting your MPP, putting things out on social media, um, uh, writing to the Minister of Health, 
in whatever community that you're in, whatever province that you're in, and uh, letting them know, hey, you need to get to that table. We need to have these innovations available to people who would benefit from them so that it benefits all of us. So really just getting out there, and both of my children have um, uh, TikToks that have gotten well over a million views at this point, and people are eager and sharing it and uh, sending out letters. And we know that Fighting Blindness Canada also has a site that you can go to to learn more about Luxterna, the benefits of it, and how you can help support um, advocacy um, to allow the surgery to the, the therapy to be available to Canadians. Well, you know, we've just got about a minute left and I can see you you and your family has come a long way in your journey with uh, your two children and their vision loss experience. But, you know, I've talked to a lot of parents, especially the parents of, uh, of newborn children with vision impairments, and they are completely overwhelmed. So in the 30 seconds or so that we have left. What advice would you give someone uh, based on your experience? How should they go about dealing with maybe an unanticipated diagnosis and they've just learned that their child is suffering from some kind of vision loss? Um, my advice would be love your children. Don't mourn the child that you thought you were having. Embrace the child that you have. And they can do anything. They can achieve anything. They can do all things just like all other babies, like the baby that you may have anticipated, they'll be able to do that. So encourage them, consistently advocate for them, and love them unconditionally. Oh, that's beautiful. Charmaine, thank you very much for being on the program today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. It was great speaking with you. That was parent and advocate Charmaine Brown. She was in Pickering, Ontario this morning. In our last few minutes, we'll learn about the ways in which Fighting Blindness Canada is helping to advance research about and access to cutting-edge treatments for various eye conditions. Dr. Larissa Monez is Director of Research and Mission at Fighting Blindness Canada. She is in Toronto. Dr. Moniz, welcome back to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Of course. So today we're talking about innovative treatments, and we've been chatting a bit about Luxterna. For those who have just joined the program, tell us a little bit about that treatment. So Luxterna is a really exciting new therapy. It's a gene replacement therapy, and it's actually the first gene replacement therapy approved for any disease in Canada. And so what this means is that it's a treatment for individuals who have either liver congenital amaurosis or retinitis pigmentosa, which are two types of inherited retinal diseases, but um, specifically caused by mutations in a single gene called RPE65. So this gene is really essential for cells in the retina to send light and to send light signals to basically to create vision. And what the gene therapy does is it puts a new functional copy of this RPE65 gene back into cells in the retina and it helps the cells work better. And in clinical trials, it's been shown to improve vision specifically in low light conditions. And it also really helps people function more independently. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how Fighting Blindness Canada has been involved with the development of a, a therapy like Luxterna. So Fighting Blindness Canada, our mission really is to invest funding into research to understand how vision loss occurs and to um, help develop or help researchers develop new treatments um, for different types of blinding eye diseases. So we fund research about understanding the mechanisms, um, understanding 
sort of helping develop different types of gene therapies. And so research like Fighting Blindness Canada, as well as research around the world, has really gone into driving the development of all of these innovative treatments. And Luxterna is just the first one. There are many more that are sort of coming down the pipeline that are in, are in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So that sounds it's, like um, it's good news. Sort of yeah. Co- yeah, definitely. It's like the collective work of research around the world that has really driven this, driven this to the point where we're starting to see treatments for um, diseases where until, um, until last year there were no treatments at all. And now we have, this is the first one, but we're hoping that there will be many more, many more coming in the years to come. Well, isn't that exciting? You know, a big part of doing uh, research into innovative treatments is the ability to share that with the public. So how has FBC been educating the public about some of these treatments and helping to answer some of the questions that have come up? Yeah, so our, our community is always so excited to hear about um, research, but also specifically new treatments, because, of course, um, that is what they're, they're waiting for, and that is what our donors are giving us money for, is trying to find treatments for people who potentially haven't had options. And so what we try to do is, um, of course, we want to focus our resources on funding this amazing research, but we also think it's really important to share the impact of this research. And so we do that through so many different channels. We have webinar series called Viewpoint, where we have clinicians and researchers who talk about either new treatments that they're working on or or new treatments that are um, out out in the clinic that they are working on with their patients. Um, We also share a lot of information through our e-newsletter, which people can sign up for on our website, fightingblindness.ca. And so every month we talk about Fighting Blindness Canada funded researchers, but also other innovative research that's happening around the world. And, of course, mm-hmm. through social media. So if you follow us on any of our channels, on Instagram, on Twitter, um, on Facebook, you'll, you'll see, um, see exciting news that we, we try to tell people about whenever we hear about it as well. So, you know, there's a big difference, I'm sure you'll understand, between finding a new treatment like Luxterna, which is really exciting for people who might benefit from it, and also ensuring that Canadians can access that treatment. So how has FPC sort of been involved with the advocacy effort around ensuring that treatments like Luxterna, which you said is the first, that treatments like Luxterna would be available to the Canadian public? Yeah, I think that's like a really, really important point. And you really hit the nail on the head that we obviously think it's so important to develop these new treatments, but once they're developed, it isn't very useful if um, Canadians don't have access to them or if they're not publicly funded, because many of these treatments are extremely expensive and um, it isn't in, in everybody's capability to pay for it themselves. So we think the advocacy side can be sometimes just as important as the research side. So what we try to do is we really try to act as essentially the patient voice, so really trying to understand how individuals in the vision loss community are feeling and then share this information with decision makers so that when decision makers are making the decision about whether a treatment should be funded or should be approved, they're judging, of course, the clinical data to make sure the treatment is safe, that it's effective, but they're also really understanding some of the barriers that um, individuals have right now if they don't have a treatment or the treatment isn't working and what they sort of hope to get out of a new treatment. So just getting a really fulsome picture of of the situation. We we basically work with um, our vision partners, so other uh, vision health organizations, to um, submit submit data to to these government regulators and also to, um, through different campaigns, help people share their voice with, with these government regulators. 
Do you have any idea about how many Canadians might benefit from a treatment like Luxterna and what the potential impact of making a treatment like Luxterna widely available might be? So Luxterna itself, as I mentioned, it's for a very specific gene and specific gene mutation. Mm-hmm. And so it actually will only benefit um, maybe 50 to 100 Canadians. It's um, the, the number isn't isn't specific yet. We don't know exactly how many people have these mutations, but um, it isn't a huge number. But what we think is really important is that, as I mentioned, Luxterna is just one of many different treatments that are coming, some of which, mm-hmm. like Luxterna, are gene-specific and others are also innovative treatments, both gene therapies or um, stem cell therapies or optogenetics, all really new and exciting types of treatments. And these will um, affect more and more people. So this is the first, and we hope that this is a good case study. And if this can be approved, and if regulators see the value of this, it means it will be easier for future treatments that are coming down the pipeline to also be um, approved, which helps more and more people. I couldn't agree with you more. So for any of us listening at home, how can Canadians support your efforts to make sure that treatments like Luxterna are approved quickly and made available to the people who need them? Yes, I think there are a few ways. So first of all, if, if this is something that interests you, stay informed, um, either through Fighting Blindness Canada or other, other vision health organizations. So like I mentioned, we have an e-newsletter where we talk about upcoming advocacy efforts. Um, we also often ask for feedback for surveys. So if you get a survey that's from us, from Canadian Council of the Blind, from um, CNIV, please fill it out because it's really important to hear um, your voice and to hear what you think about stuff. Because if we don't know, it's hard for us to talk to the decision makers. And specifically for Luxterna right now, we actually have an email campaign going on. It's, um, you can find out more about it at the website approveluxterna.ca. And here we're really asking people to send an email, which will go to your premier, to health ministers, to other decision makers, asking them to speed up the approval process. So Luxterna has been approved by Health Canada. So they've said it's safe. They've said it's effective. But right now we're trying to figure out if the provinces are going to publicly fund it. Because without public funding, um, this treatment is cost close to a million dollars, it will be completely out of reach for Canadians. And Mm -hmm. so it's really crucial that the provinces say they will fund it. And so right now we're waiting for that negotiation process, for the price negotiation to start. And it's taking a little bit longer than it should, partly because it's a new treatment, it's very complicated, but we also know that every day that we wait, people are are losing their vision if they've got progressive um, vision loss. So we are just trying to let them know that it is crucial that they do the negotiations as quick as they can and that bureaucracy hopefully isn't holding up um, the potential for somebody to get treatment before they lose their vision. Yeah, we've only got a few minutes left here. And just before we do wind up our conversation, I wanted to chat with you and see, uh, apart from the email campaign for Luxterna, what else you've got coming up uh, at the FBC Uh, let's say for the next two and a half months or so, what can people look forward to? Yeah, so we're um, like everybody else, we sort of um, wind down a little bit in the summer, but until then we have a few, few exciting things that I think people would be interested in. The first, as I mentioned, we have these educational webinars called Viewpoint. And so we have one coming up next week, which is on June 9th. And it's about the impact of vision loss. So we have um, recently put out in collaboration with the Canadian Council of the Blind and some other other partners, 
a report about the cost of vision loss in Canada. So we're going to be having a discussion with some individuals who are affected by vision loss just to understand what the report means to them and what they want the government to do to support more investment in research and healthcare and diagnosis. So that's on June 9th. And then on June 29th, we have our first webinar on cataracts, actually. So we hope that this will, um, we know this affects many, many people across the vision loss spectrum. So we think this will be an exciting topic for some people. And so you can find out all about that on our website, which is fightingblindness.ca. And finally, we have um, an, our annual fundraiser, which we're very excited about. It's on June 19th, and it's called Cycle for Sight. So normally, this is an in-person event where people get together in one spot, and they ride for many, many kilometers on their bikes. And this is the second year we have taken this virtual. And it's been a really, uh, I would say, a silver lining of the, this process that we have to do it virtually, where it's accessible to, to so many more people, because people can still ride a bike, but they can also walk, they can do yoga. We're just asking people to get active in any way that works for them. And we're asking them to do this to raise awareness and also money for vision research. So if people think this is something they might be interested in, if they want to get together with some friends, um, go for a walk, go for a bike ride on June 19th, um, please go to cycleforsight.ca. And you can find out all the information about how to sign up, how to donate, and more about our um, vision research as well. Larissa Moniz, thank you very much for being on the program again. It was a pleasure chatting with you. You too. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Larissa Moniz, Director of Research and Mission at Fighting Blindness Canada. She was in Toronto. That brings us to the end of this special episode on innovative eye care and treatments. For more information, you can always access the FBC website at fightingblindnesscanada.ca. You can also find this episode, which will be available very soon as a podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Bernard Hurley, Dr. Brian Balios, Charmaine Brown, and Dr. Larissa Moniz for being my guests on the program. I'd also like to extend my thanks to Morgan Einson, Faye Knights, and the rest of the team at Fighting Blindness Canada. Our technical producers are Daniel Panamondo and Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Janice Davidson-Presick is the Manager for Marketing and Communications at Accessible Media, Inc. Andy Frank is the Manager for AMI Audio. Paula Deneen is our Technical Supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.